This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. MPT, as is well known, was Ted Hughes's idea, as was also Poetry International, which will be 50 in two years' time. Hughes was a great one, first of all, for having ideas, and then also for seeing who might be best employed carrying them out. <laughs> and he rightly chose Danny Weisbrook, um, who carried it on when Hughes had slightly departed into other areas, uh, nobly and completely um, in, in a fashion which deserves our internal gratitude. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever about that. In the early 1980s, there was a sort of pause in the publication and the thinking about MPT. There was a serious reflection on its beginnings. By that time, they could already look back all those years, some years, to 1965. Uh, Sasha's already quoted from this extraordinary um, forward to the issue of 1983, which Danny actually persuaded Ted uh, to write. And at that distance, what Hughes was supremely good at seeing was what the mood, the spirit of those times was like. A couple of years earlier, in uh, I think it was the issue 41-42 of MPT, there'd been a very good uh, article by Edmund Keeley, the great translator from, translator from modern Greek, about what it had been like, about what the world of translation was like before MPT came into it, and there was very little before 1965, which absolutely doesn't mean that MPT, as it were, solely invented it. The point that Hughes makes, insists upon, and that Keeley also, prior to Hughes, had pointed to, is that MPT came into being on a wave of eagerness and need for translation. It rides that wave supremely well, but it is by no means the only expression of that wave. In other publications, in translation centres being up, suddenly the zeitgeist demands it, that there shall be an answer to the manifest need for translation of poetry out of other languages and cultures. Hughes's phrase for this, which is terribly memorable, Hughes says that the sheer pressure of material forced the issue. So MPT comes as something which has to be. It comes out of a time and places which are asking for it, out of people which need it, who, who need it, cultures that need it, languages that need it. And Hughes's idea, the two of them carrying it through, they answered a need which is, as you to say later, still there. They talked perhaps a bit ambitiously, about a new Elizabethan age of translation. <coughs> if you look back to Surrey and the others, at that time, how much came into English in the 16th century that made Shakespeare possible? Chaucer prior to that, but in the 16th century, colossally, Wyatt and Surrey together, bringing an enormous amount of, of translated verse in. Surrey, as I've said, before actually invented the iambic pentameter. He brought it into English. He was translating the Aeneid. He wanted an equivalent line 
for the sonorousness and gravity and flexibility of the Latin hexameter and hit on the unrhyming iambic pentameter prior to Shakespeare and it's been in the language since. That's one among hundreds of colossally effective gifts of translation into our supreme tongue. So it was urgent. It was urgent because people wanted it. It was also politically necessary. The Times also demanded it. To MPT's eternal credit, it was there, as it were, on the frontiers of Eastern Europe, waiting for the things to come out, facilitating the things coming out. It was there, actually, it had people there in 1968 in Prague, writing about it, writers on the spot, Weisbord himself visiting. Daniel Weisbord then, with Norma Rinsler in Kings and the board of MPT, kept this magazine going until 2003, when he, Danny, handed it on to Helen and to me. We passed it on to Sasha in 2012, and I ask you now to look around you at this weekend, not for her monument, but to admire her living, continuing success. It's there in you here, and in the poems you've been hearing this weekend, and in the issues she's already edited and Times got significantly worse between our editorship and Sasha's. She has a harder job than we had assembling the necessary funding issue by issue. At the back of the next few sentences, does it matter if a magazine founders, if it vanishes, if it goes out of circulation? In the UK at least, it is probably still the case that no government would actually close down a literary magazine unless that magazine offended against laws having to do with the incitement to hatred or racial prejudice or whatever, then that magazine would be rightly closed down. But as it were, just as an annoyance, as a polemical annoyance, I don't think yet any government would actually close it down. But any government, anywhere, and certainly in the United Kingdom, and some governments more than others, might make the survival of a magazine like Modern Poetry and Translation, let alone its flourishing, harder and harder, by reducing and in the end refusing any public contribution, and more generally, but also effectively, by fostering an ideology hostile to the humanities. It will always be a struggle to keep this and other magazines, Poetry London, to see represented here, afloat. And not just afloat, we want more than that. We deserve more than that. We want something that thrives. We want a climate and we want encouragement to enable us actually to thrive. I mentioned 1968 and um, Václav Havel, a dissident in those days and then actually president of the country in which he had been a dissident, a playwright, of course, and a dissident, and then a president, finding it harder as president to be dissident and, uh, and, uh, and playwright. He 
in the times when magazines in Czechoslovakia were actually being closed down and their editors and contributors actually imprisoned or forced into exile. He mused on what it, whether it matters or not and how it matters when a small magazine, perhaps one of scores, perhaps, perhaps even in a country like Czechoslovakia, one of hundreds, when another one goes. And the image he came up with then, and that is not just his but many people have contributed to it, and I find particularly telling, is that of an ecology. When another species goes, when another habitat goes, when another language goes, you may not even notice it, you may not be told, you may not read about it, but unconsciously we are all not just diminished, but actually lessened in our ability to live by these frequent now, in fact very frequent, disappearances. Wildlife survives and even gets into the cities if there are corridors, if there are, as it were, wildernesses, even just in corridors. They can make do on precious little sometimes. But if there are connecting corridors from one habitat to another, sever the corridor and they die. It's much the same with literary and cultural life. Sever the connections, sever the things that, that hold us together, the actual interstices, the net weakens the web, let's say, because we're not trying to capture anything, the web, the web of life itself, sever any one and it weakens, sever a few more and it weakens further. And Harvell's great worry, which he did so much to combat, was that every time one of these things is extinguished, even if nobody has read it, he goes that far, even if your circulation is minute, he goes as far as to say that in each of these magazines, in their contributions, a possibility was offered you, whether it was widely realised or not. And what he worried about, and with absolute right, and we should be doing too, is that the more of these possibilities which are extinguished without their ever being realised, there could come a point, as he well realised, and I think we perfectly well realise also, when actually the very possibility itself qua possibility, as possibility, is forgotten. We no longer have it even as a possibility because we have forgotten that it was ever there. Now that clearly, whether it's wildlife or wildflowers is, or languages, is the way of death when these things vanish because the human race's total ability to imagine, and imagination is that which will, if anything will, with a humane politics, get, about, get us out of the very severe mess we're in, if these possibilities are continually fought against or eroded or argued against, or in the end, as it were, just shoved to the wall, just allowed to go to the wall, then we're on the slope that will actually, in the end, produce a humanity so diminished that it will be sort of mechanical. Now, we don't want that. Nobody, nobody wants that. It's got more critical, and funding is part of it, but it's by no means the only thing. This year has been remarkable, not only for its new atrocities, but its endless, almost as it seems, anniversaries of the old one. We will never catch up. There won't be time and place in the calendar for the number of atrocities and collapses into barbarism that we need to commemorate. MPT is one magazine among many. And it, I suppose it must be 12 years ago, 13, no, it's more than that. <laughs> Everything's more than that. <laughs> in, in 2003, 
I was asked to give a talk to the ICA, to an audience rather similar to this, effectively about why I thought Helen and I could do it, why I thought we were fit people to take it on, and what I hoped we would make of it. And when I look round now, I see exactly the same, and I have exactly the same faith. I see people who, for no money whatsoever, or for very little money, are dedicated to this thing that matters to us, as publishers, as writers, as contributors to the magazine, as editors, and as readers and audiences. Every one of those people has a stake in it. And knowing that people have a stake in something that was, to me, and to, I guess to all of you, so manifestly matters, is so critically important, that gives me the conviction, I've never lost it since that day when I made a similar brief speech. It's, it's been um, increased and reinforced issue after issue that Helen and I put together, and issue after issue that Sasha has put together. MPT, and I mean by that our magazine, but, but similar, sort of congenially similar magazines as well, is a living thing. That's why this pause in the 1980s is so important. They look back, see where they've come from, see how they might be enabled to continue. Intrinsic in the act of translating poetry is an affirmation of plurality, of freedom across frontiers, of generosity of imagination. It's an intrinsic affirmation, that is to say it's embedded in the very thing that you do as translator and that you enjoy as reader of it and that you facilitate as editor and publisher of it, it's there in that. And since no affirmation takes place in a vacuum, this, our affirmation here, must also be seen as revolt. We live in times where we define ourselves by revolt, by the nature, the quality and the force of our revolt. It's a revolt, it's a resistance, an act of revolt and resistance against every fundamentalism, against every stupid chauvinism, against every meanness of spirit, every philistinism, every reduction of the citizen to a cog in a machinery only there to buy and sell. It's intrinsic in everything that we do with this magazine and in with similar magazines. And in case this seems too, as it were, individual, the great sort of dictum I have from Albert Camus, from L'homme révolté, is Je me révolte, donc nous sommes. <laughs> I revolt, therefore, not I am, but I revolt, therefore we are. And that's the mood and the spirit of this place here. Thank you. <laughs>